a good number present this evening. We appreciate the presence of everyone. If you have a Bible with you, and I encourage you to take that Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke with me, if you will. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Let's talk a little about the context of that setting of those two verses in Luke chapter 22. We won't go back all the way further than, say, beginning at verse 14. In that context, Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. So in Luke chapter 22... Verses 14 to 23, without reading that, that is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, beginning at verse 24 is a record of the dispute of who is the greatest. Matthew 18 records a dispute among them about who is the greatest. Seemingly, there is an argument about which one may be considered as the greatest in the kingdom, viewing the kingdom as an earthly materialistic kingdom, who's going to sit on the right hand and who's going to sit on the left. And so we have that discussion down through verse 30. And then beginning at verse 31, we have a prediction or a prophecy of Peter's denial. And that is, he says, the Lord said in verse 31 and 32, Satan has desired you and I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And then I notice at verse 33, we didn't read that verse, that Lord, I'm ready to go with you. This is Peter speaking both in prison and to death. Now, you're praying for me, I'm paraphrasing, that my faith may not fail, but I'm ready, it's not going to fail, I'm ready to go with you to prison and into death. And then, verse 34, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. And, of course, you know the result of that. Now, let's talk about the fact that the Lord knew three things about Peter as revealed in our text in verse 31 and 32. First, he knew that Peter would be tempted. Let's go back to verse 31. He says at verse 31, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. So he recognizes and he knows that you will be tempted. And secondly, that he would yield to to that temptation. For he says, when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, but when you are, when you, uh, return, strengthen your brethren. The third thing that he knew is that he would be restored. So Peter, you're going to be tempted is one thing. Secondly, you're going to yield to that temptation and give in. And furthermore, you're going to come back from that. And all of that is foretold in these two verses. Now, why does he mention this to Peter? Because all of the disciples were under temptation. You see, Peter was a likely candidate for temptation. All of them were, but particularly Peter. Why? Because he occupied a distinguished place among the disciples. I don't mean he was more prominent. I don't mean he was more important. But he was part of that inner circle. We often talk about the immediate disciples, the twelve. And of those, there were three that had a closer relationship with the Lord. And so here was three disciples, and Peter was one of those three that had this close relationship with the Lord. 
And therefore, he was a prominent one among the disciples, and Satan, if he has targeted him, is going to target one that has a close relationship with the Lord. Secondly, Peter was the kind of man that was rash and eager to speak and eager to answer. We won't read all of this, but let's just get a sampling of this, starting with Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 15. Notice how many times on as we come to a discussion of Jesus raising a question or making a statement that it was Peter who was uh, the first one to blurt out either a question or blurt out an answer or a request to the Lord. For example, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 15, it was Peter who said, explain the parable to us. I want you to get this picture of a man who's rash, who doesn't sit back and think things through before he speaks, but he speaks before he thinks sometimes. I don't mean he was wrong to ask to explain the parable, but he was the first one to say that. Let's go a little bit further. In chapter 16, when Jesus asked, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It was Peter who said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 16 at verse 22, when Jesus said he was going to be betrayed and killed the third day and raised the third day, it was Peter who said at verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. He was the first to speak out. And we could go on in John 13, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, it was Peter who said, you're not going to wash my feet. So we get the picture here of a man who's rash and who's eager to be the first to do something. He is a prime target for temptation. And furthermore, he was a man who was overconfident, who said, I will never do that. In fact, we just read that he would never let this happen to the Lord. And he states to the Lord, I will never do that. I will, I will go to you to prison and to death. I will never deny you. And so he was overconfident. He is a prime target for temptation. But let's go back to our text. In Luke chapter 22, I want you to notice two things. First, at verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Verse 31 focuses on the temptation and the tempter. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Secondly, verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. He focuses here on what is to be done about that temptation and the tempter. So let's talk about the temptation of Peter tonight. Based on this verse, let's notice three things about the temptation of Peter. Here's the first. Let's talk about the tempter himself because he's mentioned it in verse 31. And so let's go to verse 31 and he is identified here as Satan. So go back to your text. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. This is one who is an adversary. In other words, he's your enemy. He is out to destroy you. He is against you. And so what do we know about Satan? Let's focus on the tempter just for a moment. First of all, I want to suggest to us that he indeed is real. Satan is not some imaginary character or creature. It's not a myth. That here is this imaginary creature that has been dreamed up so that we could picture one as if this was a real being that tempted people. 
But Satan indeed is real. He is just as real and just as alive as when he tempted Eve. He's the same person who tempted Eve. Remember in Genesis 3, Satan in the form of a serpent came and tempted her and began to reason with her that what the, the requirement of the Lord wasn't correct. In the day that you eat of it, you will not surely die, he said. He's just as alive and real as when he tempted Jesus. You remember the occasion in Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted by Satan three different occasions. And just as real as he was then, as and also in the Garden of Eden, he's just as real with us today. And Peter learned that well. Now let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is most interesting at any moment, but particularly in light of Luke chapter 22. Where the Lord had tried to explain to Peter that Satan has asked for you, he said. And Peter learned that well. He didn't fully understand that at the moment. I don't think he understood it because he said, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I don't think Satan's got that great a hold on me. That's what he's saying. And so I come to 1 Peter chapter 5 and in verse 8. This is much after that, after he's been restored, as you well know. He says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary." What's the idea of Satan? He's your enemy. The devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What Peter is saying is he's real. And he's alive and he's active. He's still talking about the tempter. Let's talk about his character. What about his character? Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 3. Paul said, but I fear lest somehow the, as the serpent, talking about Genesis 3, deceived Eve by his craftiness so your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now let's get the point he's making, then we'll come back to a word that he used. Paul, Paul is saying, I am fearful that just as Satan worked on Eve in Genesis 3, he could work on you and you could be led astray very easily. Well, how could that happen? Let's go back to verse 3. Notice he said, I fear somehow that the serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. You have the King James, it'll say his subtleness. He's subtle, he's crafty, he's cunning, uh, one translation would say. Has to do with trickery. That is, he is deceptive. In other words, he doesn't picture himself to you as I am the devil and I, have, I am out to destroy you. What I'm about to get you to do is going to ruin you spiritually. It'll ruin your hopes of heaven. He doesn't picture himself as that, but he slips around craftily and in a sneaking way so that he deceives you. He's cunning. He's crafty. He indeed is subtle. Let's go to another passage where we were just a moment ago. He hates righteousness. In other words, he has no respect for your godliness and your righteousness that he walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, who is that? Well, Peter is writing to those who are holy and he's being urged to be holy, which is what the book is all about. And he's telling them that Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, those who are not godly, he's already got. He doesn't need to devour them. But he's seeking to devour those who are godly and those who are righteous. He hates righteousness. So every act of righteousness, every act of obedience, every act of holiness, he hates that in you. That's part of his character. Let's go to John 8 and verse 32. Let's know who we, who, uh, we are dealing with. In John chapter 8, Jesus deals with some Jews. Here's one of the, one of the many different 
confrontations with the Pharisees. And he said, you are of your father, the devil. In other words, you're just like your daddy. That's what he's saying to them. You're just like your father. You're children of the devil. You're just like him. What was he like? Well, look at verse 44. The desires of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Well, that's what he did to Eve and to Adam and to all mankind for that matter. He's a murderer. Same verse. He is a liar. He cannot be trusted. He'll tell you one thing, but then he actually has there's something else is true. That's part of his craftiness. That's part of his cunningness, his subtlety. He's persevering. In other words, he doesn't give up easily. That is, when he is set out to devour you, he's going to work on you, and he doesn't back on and say, I'll just give up. I'll just give up. He'll come again. Notice again at verse 44. He said, you're, you have your father, the devil, the desires of your father you will do. He is a murderer from the beginning. For hundreds of years, for thousands of years, he's been at it, and he's, he's been very effective, and he keeps going on and on and on. And so he's persevering. Now, along that line, this passage is not on the screen before you. Let's turn over to 1 John, if you will, chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, this is a very familiar passage. You know the point without even turning there, that do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, verse 16 said, the lust of the eye, the lust, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the different avenues or temptation of sin. Here's the point. When I say he's persevering, he's going to target you uh, from the vantage point of the lust of the flesh. And if that doesn't work, then he may try the lust of the eye. If that doesn't work, he may try the pride of life. If that doesn't work, he tries another avenue of the lust of the flesh and another of the lust of the eye. And he'll find some point of weakness. He's persevering. He's constantly working. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to suggest to you that he's very successful and very good at what he does. Sometimes we have a concept, if someone is evil, you don't ever say anything about their success or their good. You have to hand it and hats off to the devil. He's very good at what he does. He's very successful. You say, how do you know? Well, look at Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is bringing the sermon to a close, notice what he says at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Now verse 14, but the narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few that find it. Very few will be saved in contrast to most of the world will be lost. He's been successful at his job. And so we know something about the tempter. Let's talk about his purpose. I know he's real. I know his character. What about his purpose? What's he out to do? Well, he seeks to have you. Let's go back to our text. And the Lord Simon said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Now, you may have this noted in your Bible and you don't notice this from the English. But in verse 32, when Satan has asked for you, that's a plural term. Not limited to Peter. But when I come to verse 32, but I have prayed for you. It's a singular term referring to Peter and to Peter alone. Doesn't mean he didn't pray for the other disciples, but here's the point. Satan has asked for all of you, but I'm concerned about you, Peter. Verse 32. Here's the point I want you to see. At verse 31, when Jesus is saying to Peter, Satan has asked for you. He's, he's after you. He wants to have you. He wants to have all of my disciples. 
So he wants to have every one of you. You know what that means? That includes me and you. Satan wants you. And Satan wants me. And he's after you. So take verse 31 and make application to yourself. Simon, Simon, put your name there. And the Lord is saying to you, Donnie, Donnie, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. You insert your name there. And so what's his purpose? He's after you. Now look at verse 31. What he wants to do is sift you as wheat. He wants to sift you. What does it mean to sift you? Satan has asked for you. He's wanting you. He's made a request for you. He's targeting all of you that he may sift you. Simply means to sift or to shake as in a sieve, Thayer says. Here's Barnes' observation about that. He says the grain was agitated or shaken in a kind of fan or sieve. The grain remained in the fan and the chaff or the dust were thrown off. So Christ says that Satan desired to try Peter. To place trials and temptations before him to agitate him to see whether anything of faith would remain and whether all would, uh, would not be found to be chaff, mere natural ardor or false professions. Did you get what Barnes is saying? Barnes is saying, here's the concept. Satan has said, I'd like to put Peter to the test. I'd like to put all the disciples to the test. I'd like to put them through temptations and trials and shake them up and see if there's anything of faith that remains or if it's all a matter of chaff, they can all be blown away. I'm going to put them to the test. And the Lord is saying, Peter, he's asked for all of y'all and he's going to put you through the test. You know what that means? He's going to put me through the test too. He's going to put you through the test. He's going to put you in a sieve and shake you to see if there's anything of faith that's left. That's the point. Matthew Henry makes this observation. He has challenged you. has undertaken to prove you a company of hypocrites. That is, Satan has said, like he did with Job, these disciples are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And I'm going to prove that. And Peter, especially the forwardest of you. Some suggest that Satan demanded leave to sift them as their punishment for striving as to who should be the greatest. In which contest Peter perhaps was very warm. Leave them to me to sift them for it. It's as if Satan had come to God and said, God, I, I, I see what's going on among them and they're arguing about who's the greatest. That's why we went back to the contest context. Let me have a, my hand at them and I'll show you they're a bunch of hypocrites and I'm going to shake them up and there'll be nothing left of their faith when I get through. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Is he thinking that about you? See, here's his purpose. He wants to sift you, the text says. Then verse 5, verse 8 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter says, he wants to devour you. In other words, he wants to swallow you. He wants to utterly ruin you, is what he wants to do. That's the idea of devouring. It's not that he just wants to tempt you and, and kind of put some pressure on you and to see what you're made of and okay. That's not what he's really wanting to do. He's wanting to go further and hoping what that does is ruin you. That's the idea of devour you. Now I know something about the tempter. He's real, I know his character, and I know his purpose. 
But now verse 31, verse 32 rather, says that there was the intercession on the part of Christ. Let's go back to our text in verse 32. I have prayed for you, Peter. That is singular. I'm talking about you. I'm really concerned about you, Peter. Here's a very practical thing. If the Lord were to speak to us directly and said, Satan has asked for all of you, this whole congregation that he may have you, and then he singled anybody out and said, but I'm praying for you, would you be singled out? Would that be me that he singled out? But I'm really concerned about you and about your faith and whether or not it's going to fail. Now go back to verse 32. He said, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail or fail not. He prayed for Peter and he told him so. We don't get anything else out of that. We get this principle and perhaps we need to do more of this, not only praying for people, but tell them we're praying for them. I have prayed for you. I know you're going through trials. I know, I know you're under pressure. I've prayed that your faith will hold up through that. It may be a great encouragement to people to say, I know that the temptation is strong and I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail. It must have meant something to Peter. So what did he pray? He prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. I'm praying for your faith, Peter, that when you're sifted, that there is faith left in the fan or in the sea. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying that it all isn't chaff and that it's all blown away and there is no faith left. But you are going to be sifted. You are going to be tested and you are going to be tried. Let's go back to verse 32. Here's the second thing about that. The prayer in the intercession worked. And before you say, I don't think it did, let's stop and think about that a minute. Was the prayer effective? Peter himself would say later, the, or James rather would say, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It does good. It doesn't always avail what we're targeting, but it avails much. And I think we'd have to acknowledge that whatever Jesus prayed for to the Father, it would have been an effective prayer. That doesn't mean that it was answered fully the way the Lord had asked himself. He didn't in Matthew 26. It would be possible that this cup passed from me and the cup did not pass. But let's go back to our text here. The prayer was effective in this sense. A.T. Robertson makes this observation at verse 32. But he could and did pray for Peter's faith and his praying won in the end, though Peter stumbled and fell. His prayer was that his faith wouldn't fail. But did his faith fail? Well, when you deny the Lord, that seems to me a failure to me. The bottom fell out of his faith is the point. But what Jesus prayed for is that your faith fail not, but when you return, I hope the faith is strong enough that it holds together that when it fails, you can put it back together and you come back to serve the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Pulpit makes this observation. The prayer was answered thus. The temptation came to all apostles. All fell. Peter, though, more disastrously by far than his brethren. But the result of the fall was not hopeless despair as in the case of Judas, but bitter remorse and brave, a brave manly repentance. Perhaps Jesus has in mind not only would his faith not even fail at all, but when it does fail, may it not be like Judas, where it completely and utterly is gone and it never comes back, but may you come back in bitter remorse and you come back in this manly repentance. 
And may I suggest to you in Hebrews chapter 7 and in verse 25, he is ever living to make intercession for us. He's praying for you. That is, he pleads to God on your behalf. And perhaps he's saying to God right now, I'm praying for this one. I'm concerned that their faith not fail, but I'm particularly concerned about, and insert your name there, because I'm concerned about his faith or her faith, that it doesn't fail. You say, I wish he'd pray for me. Hebrews 7 says he's pleading to God for, on my behalf right now. He ever lives to make intercession for us. What encouragement that must be. Now then, there's a third thing I want us to focus on here, and that's subsequent duty. We mentioned earlier that the Lord recognized you're going to be tempted first. Secondly, your faith is going to falter. And then thirdly, you're going to come back and you're going to return. And when you do, you have a responsibility. Let's go back to your text at verse 32. Luke 22, 32, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, when you have returned to me, would suggest you're leaving. But it also suggests you're coming back. Then he adds this. Strengthen your brethren. You see, the example of Peter and his overconfidence is not really encouraging to anybody. I don't know about you, but to see a man who says, I'll never fail, doesn't really encourage me a great deal. It reminds me that maybe I need to be not so over. Uh, confident as he was. When I see his faith failing, that doesn't encourage me a great deal. But when he came back, that does encourage me. The idea of strengthening the brethren means to make stable and make firm. Help make your brethren firm. Your previous actions are not going to help with that, but when you come back, you can. And he did. Let's see how. Number one, you could do that by example, and every one of us can do that. Your faith may falter and fail, and the bottom even fall out. You come back to the Lord, you can be of strength to your brethren. You can help. How? By encouragement. By example. Just by your example, you can. Look at Peter. He's a different man in Acts chapter 2. He's the man who boldly stands up on the day of Pentecost. His sermon is the one that's recorded. And he begins preaching about the Christ. How he is the fulfillment of prophecy. How his tomb is empty. And that the prophecy of Psalm 16 is not talking about David, but talking about the Christ. Now God has declared him both Lord and Christ. The very one, he said, I don't know who he is. He's now saying he's Lord and Christ. Look with me in Acts chapter 4. This is a different man now. He's come back and in Acts chapter 4, notice his boldness. I see it in his preaching. I see it in the example of boldness. Where he was told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. He really wasn't threatened that hard over there when he denied the Lord. But here he's threatened and he has more boldness now than he did when he wasn't threatened so severely. What an example he is. Look at chapter 5, verse 20, 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. You tell us not to obey and you'll punish us with prison sentence. Well, go ahead and do that because we're going to obey God and not man. What boldness he had. And then look at this example of him being a leader. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he now is serving as an elder who am also a fellow elder. Remember that in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 and 2? Who would have thought this man who said that 
I do not even know the man. He did that three times. He began to curse and to swear. He's warming himself by the devil's fire on that very night. He's serving now as an elder. Who's supposed to be an example to others. And he was. Here's another way he could strengthen his brethren. First by his example. Seen in his preaching. His boldness and the leader. But by words that are warnings. In other words, he can issue some warnings. And when it comes from Peter, he doesn't have to even say that I know because I've been there. Anyone who knows his history knows that. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. You think of the effectiveness of the, how effective this would be. If you got a letter, you're a part of one of the churches that gets this letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, that rejoice. Ah, greatly rejoice, though for a little while, if need be, that you're grieved by various trials. You're going to go through trials. In other words, you're going to be sifted as wheat. That the genuineness of your faith may be more precious than, uh, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory. What power that must have had when somebody recognizes, you know, that's the same man that was sifted as wheat. And his faith faltered. He's telling us we're going to go through trials. We're going to go through tribulations. We're going to go through problems. Chapter 5, verse 8, we've been talking about several times that the devil is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And what the Lord had said to Peter, he sees after you, Peter, he's going, he's going to get you. He's going to make you stumble. He's going to make you fall. What influence that must have been. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 19. Here's another warning that he issued. He can strengthen his brethren through the warnings that he gives. What warning does he give? Well, at verse 17, he just talked about, in verse 16, how people twist and rest the scriptures. He said, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness being led away by the error of the wicked. Be very careful. People can twist the scriptures and make it sound good and they can lead you astray. He's giving a warning. He's strengthening his brethren. Here's the third way that could be done. By words that are exhortation or encouragement. Peter, when you come back, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Well, how can I do that? Well, you're going to be a good example. You're going to warn people that the same thing could happen to them that happened to you. And furthermore, just some encouragement. Like what? Like add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge, knowledge, temperance. In other words, grow. Live godly. That's what the whole book is about. First and second Peter deals with living godly in all of your conduct. And also through prayer. It was Peter who said in 1 Peter chapter 3, as he quotes from Psalm 34, that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. That was Peter who said that. And look at chapter 4 and in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. He encouraged prayers. Talked about the power of prayers. And if the Lord had been praying for him, he must have prayed for other people as well. And so when you return, strengthen your brethren. How, Peter, could you do that? Well, by the example, by words of warning, by words of exhortation, and by prayer. Let's go back to our text one more time in Luke. When the Lord said, Satan, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you. Again, that's a plural term. He's talking about all the disciples. That includes me and you. He's after us. But then he singled Peter out saying, I'm really concerned though about you, Peter. I'm really concerned about you. That your faith 
could fail. And so I prayed for you that your faith fail not. But when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. We see something about the tempter. We see something about the intercession of Christ. We see something about the subsequent duty that follows. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?